a series of lessons entitled Life by the Book. Believing that the Bible is God's instruction manual, His blueprint for our lives. The manufacturer's directions for how life is best lived. So far we have discovered what the Bible says about salvation, about service, about God's will, about prayer, about friendship, about unanswered prayer, and about unity. Like I mentioned earlier, each of these lessons has been recorded and is available online via our website or Facebook page. Or if you prefer a CD, you can indicate that on your communication card or by contacting the church office directly. This morning, we come to the topic, what the Bible says about the Bible. (laughs) Now that's an interesting topic. What does the Bible actually say about itself? Perhaps Priscilla Howe summed up this unique book best when she wrote, This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Christ is its grand subject. Our good, its design. The glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. It is given you in life. It will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all those who trifle with its sacred contents. Life by the book. This morning, let's take a closer look at what the Bible says about the Bible. Follow along in your Bible as I read today's text. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we pick it up with verse 14. Paul is writing to his apprentice, Timothy, and he says, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's take a closer look at this unique and unequaled book we call the Scriptures or God's Word. And notice five things with me about the Bible today, beginning with just the introduction to the Bible. I want to refer to a couple of charts that I've provided in today's lesson notes. The first chart, titled The Bible at a Glance, is a separate insert 
there in your bulletin, was produced by InterVarsity Press. Basically, it's a timeline showing you the content of the Bible under really two major periods, the Old Testament period with its 39 books and the New Testament period with its 27 books. I'll really just let you study that chart further on your own at home. I trust, though, that it will give you a better understanding of kind of the historical context, if you will, of Scripture. The second chart. The Bible bookcase, I placed there in your lesson notes under the introduction to the Bible, and I'm also displaying it up here on the screen. As we look at it a little bit closer, let me make several general observations by way of introducing the Bible, God's Word. This book is actually a library of 66 different books written by some 40 different men and women over a period of about 1,600 years. It's divided into two major sections, the Old Testament, represented by the first two shelves on this bookcase, containing 39 books, and the New Testament, represented by the bottom shelf in this bookcase, containing 27 books. And it's arranged by various distinct sections. You'll notice, if you can read the small, small print on there, that in the Old Testament it begins with the five books of law. Then there are the twelve books of history. And the five books of poetry. Then the five major prophets. And finally, the twelve minor prophets. The New Testament, the bottom shelf, begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the one book of history, the book of Acts. Then there are the letters to the churches, the epistles to the churches, followed by the epistles to individuals, written by Paul to his apprentices, if you will. And finally, ending up with the general epistles, although I like, and this one doesn't, but I like to separate the book of Revelation by itself and call it the one book of prophecy in the New Testament. Now moving away from this chart, I believe it's important that we understand that there is one grand central theme, a scarlet thread, if you will, that runs through the Scripture. From as early as immediately following the fall of humankind in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3 and verse 15, through the great invitation at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22 and verse 17, this one theme is repeated again and again and again. And that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation through God's Son. Jesus Christ. Earlier we read Paul's words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, Timothy was brought up by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice who taught him the Scriptures. Now understand, they would have been the Old Testament Scriptures in Timothy's life. But taught him and read to him the Scriptures even when he was a baby. (laughs) And he was brought up knowing those Scriptures. And it was those Scriptures, Paul says, that made him wise to salvation. Well, of course they did. Because that's the theme of Scripture. In John 5, verses 39 and 40. 
Jesus rebuked the Jewish leaders with these words. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, Jesus says. Don't miss that. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. I mean, these leaders were really missing the boat. They had the opportunity to see the scarlet thread of scripture come to life right before them. And they missed it. Read John 20 and verse 31. Out loud with me. Would you read this with me? But these scriptures are written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing and cleaving to and trusting and relying upon Him, you may have life through His name. Amen. That's what it's all about. Folks, Paul puts it this way. Romans chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. But not everybody is ready to listen to the Bible. Ready to see and hear and act. The point is, before you trust in Christ, you have to listen to Scripture. But unless God's Word is read and taught, there's nothing to listen to. And we could go on, but, but I just want us to understand, whatever you do, don't miss this one grand central theme of the Bible, the scarlet thread of redemption that runs throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end. Salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Now having said that, let's move from the serious to the trivial. (laughs) And let's have a little fun this morning. Here's a little quiz about the Bible that I thought I would just give to you this morning. We'd have a little bit of fun with this together. For instance, what's the longest book in the Bible? Anybody? Psalms, okay. Book of Psalms, 150 chapters, 2,461 verses, 43,743 words. Okay, then what is the shortest book in the Bible? 3 John. One chapter, 14 verses, 299 words. All right. What's the longest verse in the Bible? Anybody know? Esther 8, verse 9. Depending upon which version you're reading, 80 plus or minus words in that one verse. A long verse. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Yeah, everybody knows that one. John 11, 35. Two words. Jesus Well, But I am so glad that little verse is in there because it reminds us of Jesus' heart. Doesn't it? His passion. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? Yeah, Psalm 119. 176 verses in that one chapter. What's the shortest chapter in the Bible? It's in Psalms. 117. (laughs) Psalm 117 has but two verses to it. What is the middle chapter in the Bible? Anybody? It's in Psalms, right between the two we just gave. Psalm 118. There are 594 chapters before and 594 chapters after this psalm. What's the middle verse in the Bible? It's going to be in Psalm 118, right? Verse 8. And notice it. I put it up here because I thought, man, if there's going to be a middle verse, this is a great middle verse. Look at it. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Isn't that a great verse? I mean, that's a good middle verse. We ought to remember that one. 
Okay, who wrote the most books in the Bible? Paul did. Yeah, he wrote 14 of them, if you include Hebrews. There's some debate about whether he wrote Hebrews. All right? Who wrote the second most books in the Bible? Anybody? Two guys. Moses in the Old Testament, the five books of law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And John in the New Testament. He wrote his gospel, the three letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. All right. In what three languages were the original manuscripts written? Everybody always gets Hebrew and Greek, but I heard somebody say it, Aramaic. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The manuscripts were originally written in. When was the first printed copy of the Bible produced? Anybody? This is just a history question. 1454. (laughs) Gutenberg. Remember that? Some of you will remember that from your history. Even in school about printing presses and so on. How many copies of the Bible are to be found in the average U.S. home? Any idea on this one? That's a good guess. 4.7 actually. 88% of all of the homes in the United States today have at least one copy of Scripture. But when you take all 100% of all the homes, 4.7 copies, which means we have a lot of Bibles laying around in our homes, right? Into how many languages has at least a portion of the Bible been translated? Any idea on that one? That's a hard one. I actually had to look that one up online because it changes constantly. It's growing, which is a good thing, right? 2,798, but guess what? There are 4,500 languages yet to be translated. We're not even halfway there, folks. Is that shocking to you? It was to me. Good reminder how important Scripture translation is. How many nations or people groups in the world today do not have even a portion of Scripture? Not even a little section, like a chapter or even a verse, translated into their language. How many people groups, how many nations do you think? Hey, good guess. Who said that? Hey, good job, Luann. 8,000 representing 180 million people. And guess where they live? In that 1040 window, most of them. You know what I'm talking about, about the 1040 window? Huh? Look up the longitude and latitude, 1040. And in that window, you'll see where most of these people live. Well, interesting. (laughs) We could probably go on and on. I hope that was fun. (laughs) I hope it just kind of provides a, a, a solid introduction to the Bible this morning. But that brings us to our second main point, which is the inspiration of the Bible. As we read in today's text, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the literal translation. of We take that word to mean inspired. That is, God guided the thoughts and hearts of people to record through their individual personalities and styles exactly what He wanted to communicate with us in written form. 2 Peter 1, verse 21 elaborates. In fact, let's read this verse out loud together. Would you read this one with me? The main thing to keep in mind here is that no Scripture is a matter of private opinion. And why? Because it's not concocted in the human heart 
It resulted when the Holy Spirit prompted men and women to speak God's Word. Boy, that's important for us to remember that. Now, if the Bible is inspired, God-breathed, two things must be true. First of all, it is inerrant. It is inerrant. I'm going to bump into that thing there. In other words, in its origin... It is without error. Even as God is infallible, so is the Bible, His Word, infallible. How do we know that the Bible is in error? Because it passes at least these four tests. First of all, the historical test. The Bible makes hundreds of references to historical people, places, and events, providing plenty of opportunity for contradiction with historical record, and yet there is remarkable agreement between the biblical account and the historical record, and in the few cases where there have been contradictions between the biblical account and the historical record, archaeological discoveries have shown that the Bible is actually more accurate. Isn't that interesting? We can praise God that the Bible passes the historical test. Sure, there are still a few minor conflicts that still remain between the Bible and historical accounts, but the jury's still out in these areas. Based upon the track record, however, up to this time, we can trust that when the evidence is finally in, the Bible will retain its historical respectability. The second test of the Bible's inerrancy is the manuscript test. I wish I had time to develop this one in detail. We did a few lessons ago when we were talking about, you know, our faith has reasons, if you'll remember. But let me just state the facts here this morning. There are in whole or part over 24,000 existing manuscripts of the New Testament alone, not to mention the Old Testament. The Bible is without question the single best documented piece of ancient literature that is in existence today. Simply put, The Scriptures have no equal when it comes to passing the manuscript test. Because we can compare so many different sources, we can trust that what we are reading today is as close as possible to the original handwritten manuscripts. Boy, I wish I could say more. But that brings us to the third test of the Bible's inerrancy, and that is the prophecy test. Because the Bible was written over a period of some 1,600 years, we can establish the fact that what many of the early writers boldly prophesied would happen in the future has indeed come to pass, exactly as foretold. Frankly, we could build a convincing case for the inspiration of the Bible just on this one piece of evidence alone. For instance, there are over 300 incredibly detailed messianic prophecies that were fulfilled precisely in the life of Jesus. In his classic work, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner has shown that the probability factor for any one person fulfilling these messianic prophecies by choice or by chance to be so improbable that it is in essence impossible. And that's not to mention the hundreds of other prophecies not related to the Messiah that have also come fulfilled in exact minute detail. How do we account for all of these prophecies in the Bible being fulfilled without error? The only rational answer is that a supreme all-knowing being, God, must have inspired the writers of Scripture. One final test of the Bible's inerrancy is the archaeology test. I alluded to this earlier when we mentioned the historical test, so let me just say this now. Archaeology serves to verify the biblical places, people, and events to establish that what is recorded in the Bible is indeed factual and accurate. 
When I've led tour groups to Israel, we've walked through the ruins of actual places where biblical people walk. We've seen inscriptions on stone or on manuscripts that validate the events that the Bible records. There are over 25,000 archaeological sites in Israel alone And as noted by the renowned Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluck, it may be stated, quote, categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference, not even once, unquote. So, the Bible passes the historical test, the manuscript test, the prophecy test, the archaeology test. By the way, there are other tests, but we didn't have time for them this morning. All proving beyond reasonable doubt that the Scriptures are inspired and are therefore inerrant. However, if the Bible is God-breathed or inspired, there's a second thing that must also be true, and that is it is infinite. It is infinite. In other words, to put it another way, the Scriptures are timeless. Everlasting. Even as God is eternal, so God's Word, the Bible, is eternal. Look at these two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Yes, grass withers and flowers fade, but the Word of our God endures forever. Mark 13, verse 31. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. The great apologist Bernard Ram writes, A thousand times over the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified, yet the Bible is still loved by millions and studied by millions. Yes, the Bible is infinite, everlasting, Eternal. The inspiration of the Bible. This is no ordinary book, folks. It is God-breathed. It is inerrant and infinite. Which brings us to our third main point today. And that's the interpretation of the Bible. Read uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Out loud with me. Would you read it? First of all, you must understand this. That understanding Scripture is not a matter of one's own interpretation. (laughs) Don't miss that. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation. What do I mean by that? You see, the writers of Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and what they recorded was both inerrant and infinite, and we must conclude then that God has only one correct interpretation of each Bible verse and passage. Only one. Think about that for a minute. It is critical that we understand His intended meaning. Not man's opinion. What did God mean when He inspired that writer to write those words? Now, having said that, it's obvious that there are different interpretations of various scriptures. Why is that true? Why do people not interpret or understand the meaning of the Bible alike? Three reasons, I think, basically. The first of which is ignorance. (laughs) I mean, let's just be honest. 
Paul writes of the false teachers in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 7, they do not know what they are talking about. (laughs) It's pretty clear. And the same is true today. We have false teachers today who don't know what they're talking about. They are ignorant. They are not scholars. They have not taken the time to understand the context, to look for the original meaning that God intended. They're pulling stuff out of context left and right. And they're wrong. Heresy. Because of their ignorance. The second reason is deceit. In the verse just before today's text, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, Paul writes that evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Isn't that interesting? The fact is that deceit, the enemy has deceived some. And they are teaching false teaching. They, They have been deceived and they are in the process of deceiving others. And then thirdly, conceit. Look at what Jesus said about the Jewish religious leaders in Mark chapter 7. Isaiah was right about frauds like you. Hit the bullseye, in fact. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. Ditching God's command and taking up the latest fads, you scratch out God's word and scrawl a whim in His place. I love the way the message puts that. Conceit. Pride. Arrogance, folks. There are religious hucksters in the world today who are profiting from preaching a message that tickles the ears of people. Are you with me? It's what people want to hear. It's the popular message, not the hard truth. And because of their conceit, they're teaching error. Ignorance, deceit, and conceit. Those are three of the reasons why people don't interpret the Bible correctly. Now, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 urges us to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Don't miss that last phrase. Who correctly handles the word of truth. So how can we correctly handle the Word of Truth, God's Word? How can we be sure that we interpret the Bible as God intended it to be interpreted? (laughs) Boy, I wish I had time for this, but we don't. It's called hermeneutics. (laughs) It's a big word, right? (laughs) The science of interpretation. There are laws, there are rules... And it's a complete study in and of itself. It would take us several weeks to go through. So what I've done instead is I have printed a copy of seven key principles for interpreting the Bible by Mark Driscoll, pastor at Mars Hill Church. It's back there. By the way, we have a resource table back there. I put a candle on the table so you'd see it easily. A resource table just for this sermon today. There was so much I wanted to be able to say today that we don't have time for. And I wanted to give you some things to take home. And so this is back there. Want, a little, want to learn a little bit about hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. Just some general rules that he shares with us. So pick one of those up on your way out. Uh, this morning. The interpretation of the Bible, which leads us to the instruction from 
the Bible. Let's read one more time. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 from our text out loud together. Would you read it with me? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, don't miss this. All Scripture, all of it, all 66 books, every word God recorded in Scripture, all of it is useful for four things. Notice them. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Got it? Now look at the chart that I put there in your notes. I put it up here on the screen as well for you so you could see it. Hopefully you can see the little print on that. Four things that the Bible does, Scripture does for us. First of all, teaching. It shows us the path that we're to walk on. Secondly, rebuking. Because we are prone to wander, you with me? Because we get off the track, Scripture rebukes us. It shows us where we've gotten off the path. And then thirdly, it corrects us. It shows us how to get back on the track once again. And once we're back on that path, training shows us how to stay on that path. Does that chart help you? Helps me a lot. (laughs) Okay, I'll get you a big one. How's that? I'll make a bigger one next week. I had to design this chart this week. I thought I had it someplace, but I couldn't find it. (laughs) So I kind of had to make this up. So sorry for the small print. But that's what Scripture does. It's everything. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. Now don't miss verse 17 in our text. So that Okay, it teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, it trains so that the person who serves God may be fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. Now folks, don't miss this. The Bible is all that we need to help us to become everything that God wants us to be. Again, in this series, it's entitled Life by the Book. And as we have emphasized again and again, the Bible is our instruction manual. This is our blueprint for successful Christian living. This is our source book and our guidebook. And by its teaching, its rebuking, its correcting, and its training, the Holy Spirit molds us and shapes us and refines us until we become the Christ follower that God desires us to be. Instruction from the Bible, bringing us to today's final main point, and that's the incarnation of the Bible. Maybe this is kind of a weird thought, but follow me on this. Don't let me lose you. James 1, verses 22 through 25, urges us do, don't miss that word, <laughs> do what the Bible, what God's Word says. When you only listen and do nothing, you're fooling yourselves. Those who hear God's teaching and do nothing are like people who look at themselves in a mirror. They see their faces and then go away and quickly forget what they look like. But the truly happy people are those who carefully study the Bible and they continue to study it. They do not forget what they heard, but they obey 
Don't miss that. They obey what the Scripture says. I mean, the point is, we are to read and we are to heed. We are to hear and we are to do. We are to listen and we are to obey. Scripture must be put into practice. Read 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 out loud with me. Let's read this together. When you got the message of God we preached, you didn't pass it off as just one more human opinion, but you took it to heart as God's true Word to you, which it is. God and His Word at work in you believers. Don't miss that. God and His Word at work in you believers. Simply put, the Bible really is of no value to us unless it is at work in us. Unless it is being fleshed out in our daily lives. Unless it becomes a part of all that we do and say and think. Unless it becomes incarnate in us. Now this, of course, begins with our commitment and our self-discipline toward hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on the Bible as illustrated by the hand there in your lesson notes and up here on the screen. The whole point is, how do we ingest the Word? We do it by hearing it, by reading it, by studying it, by memorizing it, and by meditating upon it. We must get into the Word so that the Word gets into us. And that includes taking advantages of opportunities such as listening to sermons or participating in small group Bible studies. However, I believe that the key here is our own personal daily time alone in the Word. Call it a quiet time. Call it a daily devotion. I don't care what you call it. Just do it. (laughs) And so, again, we don't have time to go into this in great detail, back on the table. I have some resources for you to pick up today. One of them is called How to Study the Bible. Another one is called Bible Reading Plans, both of them by the Navigators. Wonderful people, by the way, the Navigators, when it comes to your daily quiet time, your time alone in God's Word. Also, I put, there's a few copies left of our daily bread back there. At least do this. (laughs) We're going to get these hopefully once a quarter now. Is that right, Kathy? They're going to do that once a quarter for us? And we'll have these available for you to pick up. But they're daily little devotionals that you can use and follow to help you in your time. But let me get back to my point here. If you don't remember anything else that I have said this morning, please remember this. As we are hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on Scripture, the Bible. Our goal is not information. It is transformation. Our goal is not information. We have enough information already, folks. Would you agree with me? There are things you know right now that you are not putting into practice. We don't need more information. What we need is transformation. The Bible is all about life change. And if you read the Bible and it doesn't change your life, you are not listening. With me? Transformation. The Incarnation. 
of the Bible. Life by the book. This morning we're taking a closer look at what the Bible says about the Bible. What an incredible book this is. It's like no other book that's ever been written. Truly it is God's Word. His instruction manual, His blueprint for our lives, His directions for how life is best to be lived. I want to conclude by reading John's stern warning to us at the end of Revelation out loud together. Would you read it with me? And I solemnly declare to everyone who reads the Bible, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God shall add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone subtracts any part, God shall take away his share in the tree of life. Whoa. Now I realize that that applies immediately in the context to the book of Revelation. But I believe in a broader sense it also applies to all of Scripture, folks. Don't tamper with God's Word. Don't add to it and don't subtract from it. We have exactly what God wants us to have to guide us in our daily lives.